As Dan mentioned, we are going to read one of the most powerful sections of Scripture this morning, and it, and it really does stand out. So if you have your bulletins or your Bible, if you will turn with me to Acts 9, we're going to be reading Acts 9, verses 1 through 22. Acts 9, 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And he said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he will, must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. As we mentioned, today we encounter perhaps the most famous salvation story of all time, Saul on the road to Damascus. It has everything that makes a story great. A clear villain on his way to do evil deeds to Christians, but then bright lights, a voice from heaven, the villain is then knocked to the ground and blinded. And in a shocking turn of events, he regains his sight and then starts preaching the gospel with the very people he was there to arrest and to take back to Jerusalem. It's quite a story, a miraculous and a dramatic story that includes two divine dialogues and the radical transformation of a man who would shape Christianity and its thought through his his writings forever. The story here is narrated by Luke but will be told by Paul himself two more times in Acts 22 and Acts 26, and will be alluded to several times through several different epistles. Yet it is packed with truths that are applicable to us today. 
But the truth can be obscured in all the, the events and, and, the, and the dramatic nature of this story. We should rejoice in God's supernatural working in this story and such extraordinary means, but not get so caught up that we miss what the story can teach us today. Now, Saul was a unique, very ultra-qualified man. He was a Jew by birth, held a Roman citizenship, and had a Greek education. He was born in Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and had an important university at that time that was rivaled only by Athens and Alexandria. As a member of a devout Jewish family, he states later in his epistles that he was circumcised on the eighth day, he was able to trace his lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin, and he considered himself a Pharisee, just as his father was before him. It is speculated that he likely spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. It's pretty impressive. We don't know when, but we do know that at some point he left Tarsus to go to Jerusalem to study the Torah under one of the most notable and famous rabbis of the day, by a man by the name of Gamaliel. And you may remember the name of Gamaliel when they were Peter and John were brought before the council of the Sanhedrin. And he's the one that cautioned them and said, we might want, might want to slow down a little bit because if we're persecuting these men, we might actually be persecuting God. So Gamaliel was a very respected and thoughtful rabbi. But Saul was our young rising star in the Pharisees in their battle against the newly forming church that was spreading rapidly. We've already heard of his role in stoning Stephen and that the men that stoned him laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul. His ravaging of the church in chapter 8. And now he's on his way to Damascus, 170 miles outside of Jerusalem. He's going 170 miles outside of Jerusalem to try to stop this church. We read that he's still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, most of you won't remember the details I gave about the role of the Sanhedrin in governing Jewish affairs in Acts 5. But the power of capital punishment was something that was reserved for the Romans only. So Saul breathing out murderous threats is literally a man out of control. They may have likely justified their stoning of Stephen under the broader scope of keeping uh, peace in the temple precincts because he was causing a riot. But Saul is out of control, but feels he's fulfilling his righteous duties of stopping the blasphemy of people saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, Damascus was not only an important city in Greek history, but also had a very large Jewish population that lived there at the time. The letters that are mentioned there in in verse 2 were essentially standing extradition orders that the Roman emperor had given to the high priest to bring those who had escaped from the area of Jerusalem to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment so that they could be charged and punished according to the laws of Jewish custom. We read that phrase, the way. And it's used multiple times in the book of Acts. And it was a very early term before the words Christians. And we know Christians were first called that at Damascus, then it was used. But it traces back to Isaiah 43. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. These new believers in Christ believe that God was restoring Israel through Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, and their community of followers of Jesus were the renewed people of God. Now, the first thing I want us to see today in this story is a call. A call. And this is not just a general call, but it's a personal call. We see this in verse 3. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I've thought many times throughout this week, 
what that voice sounded like. Mm. Did it, it obviously sounded like it had authority, had divine authority behind it because it did. But to me, I almost read behind that a hint of mercy, a hint of, of call, a hint of love for the one that God is calling at this point. Putting together all of the passages where the story is recounted, we know that Saul saw the resurrected Christ in the midst of this blinding light. Those who were with him, likely members of the temple guard, didn't see anyone, but they heard a voice or a sound, but didn't understand what this message was. This was a message directly for Saul. And this personal call is true of all who would believe in Christ. For those of you who are believers, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen with with lights from heaven and a voice and you being knocked down to the ground. Uh, Because that's just not the way that God normatively works today. But what is true of all of us is that God had to make the first move towards us, and he had to call us. He had to make the first move against our dead hearts, our hearts that were filled with sin, our hearts that were filled with self-righteousness, our hearts that we thought that we had life figured out, our hearts that did not care about the things of God. For some of you that grew up in church, the call of God may have seemed like a natural progression as you grew up in church but it was still a personal call from God to salvation. For others, the call of God to salvation for you may have seemed more like a collision as it was in the case of Saul in the way that you were living at the time. But when the Holy Spirit calls us, he collides with our worldview, he opens up our eyes, and he shows us our sinful state. Now, there are two ways to look at Saul in this story. As either a sinful, heinous man persecuting the church which is what we tend to look at him as today, and that's what he was. Or as he saw himself at the moment, a very devout, righteous man who kept the law in every aspect and was attempting to stop the blasphemy of this church, which he believed was contrary to the law of God. But ultimately, Saul concluded about himself that he was indeed a sinner, that the things he counted as gain for himself were ultimately nothing but loss. From Romans 3, he strings several passages together. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this collision between God and man still exists today. On the one end of the spectrum, we have those who don't believe and don't care about this fairy tale of anything related to God and Christianity. It's just a made-up thing for people to soothe their consciousness for them. On the other end of the spectrum, and this is what we encounter more in church, is we have people who are doing their hardest and living their lives and trying to do everything they can to live right and hopefully make it to heaven and please God through their works. But really where most of society probably lives is in the middle. People who are now just following their own way. There isn't one way that's right for everybody, so you can't tell me that there's a particular way in Christ. If I just live true to myself and love others, then everything will work out in the end. But again, wherever you are on that spectrum, God has to make the first move and make the call to salvation. To give us a new life so that we can accept the gift of faith and believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, the Son of God, who took my sins and your sins upon himself, the one who died for us 
and is now alive through his resurrection and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and is coming again, defeating sin and death. And as Dan mentioned earlier in his call to worship, this is because of the steadfast love that God has for us. This is why he did this. This is because he loved us. God needing to make the first move to us is a direct result of our spiritual deadness. We aren't sick or wounded or broken or struggling to stay afloat on the waters of life or or whatever metaphors that we tend to use when we talk about these things or, or we insert into songs. We were spiritually dead, just as Saul. But God making the first move towards us also serves several practical purposes for us. One is that God's grace is magnified and we are humbled. From Ephesians 2, this very famous passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. You and I didn't seek God. We didn't reach out for God. He called to us, and he came to us in our need. And so all praise and glory and salvation thus belongs to God because of him reaching out to us first. Second, the practical purpose, if our salvation is dependent upon God, then our salvation is secure. From Romans 8, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then skipping several verses to the conclusion of that thought. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What God started in you and what God started in me when he called us to salvation will be completed throughout eternity. It's not up to any of us. It's all because of God and his grace. And thus we have security and salvation because of that. God and his love and his grace collides with us as sinners, calls us to himself, Maybe not in a scene as dramatic as Saul in the road to Damascus, but in no less of a miraculous way. One thing I love about this passage is the solidarity that Christ shows with his people. He states, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. An affront against believers is an affront against Christ himself. Those who he loved and that he gave himself for. And whatever struggles you may be going through for life, whatever persecution you may experience as a result of being a Christian, just know that one day all of those things will be made right because Jesus takes that as an affront against himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It mentions in verse 9 that Paul did not eat or drink for three days. And we know from Judaism and history that a three-day fast is one that was usually reserved for someone who felt they needed repentance. But I can't help but wonder what was going through Saul's mind as he sat there, blinded, likely alone in a room, not talking to anyone, just thinking through the scriptures. A man who was highly schooled in the scriptures and could have quoted the, probably quoted the Torah back to us, and probably could have quoted much of the prophets to us. Was he thinking of the suffering servant from Isaiah and how Jesus fulfilled all of that? Was he thinking of all the prophecies of the Messiah that had come through, but even back to Moses. And was he putting it finally together and seeing that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, the promised Messiah? It's probably during this time of fasting and praying that even though he could not see physically, 
He could see spiritually for the first time in his life. Salvation is the result of a call from God to give you a new life so that by faith you can repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. So first we have a call. Second, I want us to see a commission. A commission. In verse 10, we read of a disciple in Damascus named Ananias who had a vision from God. In Acts 22, he is described as a devout man according to the law. So it seemingly indicates that he's someone that fellow believers in that area would trust and would have some confidence in. And Ananias gives the correct answer when called by God. He says, here I am, Lord. It reminds me a bit of what Eli told Samuel to do and how to answer him. The Lord then gives him directions of where he is to go, of who he's to meet, and what he's to do. He's also told that Saul is praying and that he's been seen that a man named Ananias would come and lay hands on him. Now, the objection from Ananias is quite understandable, given the fact of what he's heard about Saul. But in verse 15, God quickly overrules that objection and instructs him to go. For he, meaning Saul, is a chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Ananias obeys and goes to where he's instructed and lays hands on him as he was directed to do. But with the address, and I love this address and the grace behind it, Brother Saul. That greeting and the grace from the message that Ananias had received from God. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, we see that Saul regained his sight and for the first time is able to spiritually see how much he was blinded by his sin. He was baptized and ate and we told that he regained his strength. Again, God works in many ways. And in a case with Ananias that, again, is not really normative for our time in history. Yet how many of us have heard the prompting of the Holy Spirit telling us to go speak to someone that we may not know? Or even someone that we do know, one of our friends, one of our family members, an acquaintance. I know I have, but honestly, it seems I come up with more objections that are pretty pathetic compared to what Ananias has. My, Ananias, my objections aren't, um, are you sure, God? Because this guy's come here to, to murder and bring people back to Jerusalem and to persecute them because I've heard all the bad things about him. My objections are usually pretty wishy-washy. Well, they, they don't want to be bothered or I, I don't have time. It, it, it's, just, it's not a good time. But what if they think I'm one of those Jesus freaks? What if our friendship is kind of weird after that? It's a personal thing with religion, so it's best to just, just, just leave that alone. Mm. But literally, my own cowardice and pride prevent me from doing what God is asking me to do with those weak excuses. Ananias was specifically commissioned by God for Saul. But we as believers, as the church, as believers in Jesus Christ, are generally commissioned by Christ, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Now, God is sovereign and his plans never fail, but he chooses to use us to accomplish those plans. But I think about it for a moment. What if Ananias had refused? It's an interesting thought. I think we still would have had Paul, but what if Ananias had refused? But who in your life is the Holy Spirit prompting you to speak to that you're objecting or refusing to do so.
As followers of Christ, we must be obedient to the Holy Spirit's guidance as he prompts us to share our faith with, faith with others. And we must do it with grace and humility, as Ananias did. Third thing I want to see is the importance of community. In verse 19, we read that for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, that's such a small phrase, kind of stuck there in the middle of a verse. that could be easily overlooked as a transition to, to what comes next. And what comes next seems much more dramatic and, and much more, much more action to it. But it's such a key for a new believer, or any believer, even for one with gifts and talents and the special calling of Saul to be with other believers. Probably for the first time in his life, Saul experienced genuine acceptance, love, and even forgiveness from some of those that he had harmed before. He probably heard testimonies from others about how they came to Christ from either a zealous religious life such as his own or from those in a polytheistic Roman Empire that he would have never associated with as a Pharisee. But they were all one and they were all together, all sharing in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. For the first time, he wasn't measured by by what he did or how well he lived up to the standards of the law or another's expectations but was living in grace and freedom that was found in Jesus Christ. There was no competition of, of who kept the law better or the hundreds of additions to the law that the Pharisees added on to it to make sure that they didn't break any actual commandment of God. It's here he probably started to see how the body of Christ functioned and the importance of each piece in the body of Christ working together as a whole. The soon-to-be apostle of grace heard and witnessed the grace of Jesus Christ being lived out by these believers in even some of the most dangerous and most difficult of circumstances. He saw humility. He saw sacrifice. He saw people truly loving their neighbor and people loving God, not out of an obligation to love God, not out of an obligation to please God, but because they had been transformed by the grace of God. Now, when people come here to our church within these walls, when people come into your home, what do they see? Do they see a life and and a community that's been changed by grace and that we love God because he first loved us and thus we love others and we give and receive love to others? That's what we try to talk about all the time of be loved and loved. And that's what we want to live out in this church. Just as for Saul, being with and living in a community of other believers is so important for our spiritual growth and development. To rejoice in the love that God has shown to us and to give and receive love from others. Finally, I want us to see conversion. Conversion. And what a radical conversion it was. Verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc of Jerusalem and those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who had lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The man who was on his way breathing out threats and murder, carrying official letters from the chief priests backed up by the Roman emperor to haul them back to Jerusalem under guard, is now preaching Jesus Christ to the Jews. That type of change only comes through the Holy Spirit when it gets into a life and into a heart and changes it. 
Now, none of us are likely going to be a Paul in preaching and expounding the scriptures and, and writing letters under the inspiration of the Spirit that will change humanity forever. But at the very least, at the very minimum, the one thing that we can all do is share our testimony. We can talk to other people and say, hey, here's what Christ has done for me. Here's how he's changed me. Here's how he's transformed my life. Took the things that I thought were important and showed me how worthless they are compared to him and his glory. Or of how he's given me a hope and a peace and a new outlook on life that I never had before. If you read Paul's accounts of his life and his experience in his writings, that's essentially what he says. You don't have to be an expert on apologetics or have the answer to every question to, to the arguments that people might raise. You don't need seminary or special training just to tell someone to say, hey, let me tell you how Jesus Christ has changed my life. Because that is the one thing that no one can debate is what Christ has done for you. And you can share that freely because the results are not on you. The results are on the Holy Spirit working in the life of the other person. It's nothing that you say or do that will win them over. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. Maybe you're just planting a seed that someone else will come along and water later. And then another person will come along and see and bear the fruit of that. And you may never know about that until eternity. But it has to start with someone sharing the love and grace and the message of Jesus Christ. This is something we can all do and we should be doing. A life that has been converted, a life that has been changed through the grace of God, seeks to tell others about what has been done for them. Saul, by his Jewish name, Paul, by his Greek name, was used as a chosen instrument of God to bring the message throughout the world at that time. And yes, he suffered many things on the account of Christ, just as God promised to Ananias. But the one thing he never lost focus on was what mattered the most. In a brief summary of his testimony in Philippians 3, he writes this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do we love Christ that much? And do we esteem what Christ has done for us that highly that we can say the same thing as Paul? Several things I want to ask as we close this morning. Will we follow the example of Paul and tell our story of how God has called us by name and by his grace through faith? Will we, will we be obedient like Ananias was and find those who are searching in their faith? Will we be a community that loves God just as he has loved us and then love others so that we can all live in a community that's been changed by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for how you work. We thank you, first of all, for Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith in him. We thank you that when you called us, you sealed us. And because you've sealed us, you'll never let us go. And that because of that, we will receive our final glorification one day with you. Not because of anything that we have done, but only because of what you have done for us. I pray for myself and I pray for our church this morning that we be obedient to the commission that you've given to all of us to make disciples, that we share with others what you have done for us. 
I pray that you would help our church to grow in community so that we might experience grace and grow and mature in your word. I pray that we would see people come to you and be saved, that they would be growing and committed to you. Thank you for Paul and the message of grace that runs throughout the scriptures because of this encounter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.